Saturday I spoke about the three characteristics that the Buddha talked about impermanence, uh, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and uh, this teaching of anatta. Uh, and I focused primarily on the <laughs> Focus primarily on the uh, two characteristics of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness. So tonight, I'd like to explore in a little bit more depth this teaching of anatta that the Buddha gave, um, and see if we can begin to understand it a little bit more. And uh, more importantly, that, that we can begin uh, to practice with it, make it something real for us, something practical. So the word anatta, uh, atta, it means self in, in Pali, A-T-T-A, self. And the an is an, A-N, is like a negation, negative. So usually translated as no self or not self or uh, selflessness or something like that. Emptiness of self. And this is something that uh, com- it's quite common that we, we've come across, may have come across this teaching, either um, reading or in, in talks. And, but it's, uh, usually there's a, it's quite a hard idea to grasp. And there may be quite a lot of confusion around it. So hopefully just to bring a little light. We may have heard about it, maybe wondering what, mm, what's this all about. And it may be uh, that we've come to practice uh, and may have heard about this anatta or whatever and, and actually, well, you know, I really just want to get calm and I just want to relax and, and uh, be a bit more peaceful. Or there are certain issues that we want to see through and that's quite uh, normal. We want to just be free of certain issues. But... As valuable as that is, uh, it's it's actually the case that sooner or later we're going to have to look at this question of self and the emptiness of self. We're going to have to understand anatta because uh, suffering depends on self. Basically, suffering depends on this notion of self that we have, on this notion of a solid, uh, fixed sense of self. So if we want to see through suffering, if we want to have some relief from suffering in a deep way, we actually have to uh, really go into this question. The typical human condition is actually, uh, uh, without any notion of any uh, sense of judgment to it, we're actually typically quite self-centered. That's how we live life and that's how we relate to life. We see life through uh, the eyes and through the lens of me and my self-interest. And sometimes we don't actually realize how, uh, how much that's going on, how deeply implanted it is, and what its effects are, what its, what its impact is on our lives. 
Um, so I was talking the other day with someone uh, somewhere else, and she was she is slowly moving into a new role that involves a lot of public speaking, a lot of uh, presentation, and um, uh, leading groups and that kind of thing. <coughs> and uh, she was just telling me about it, and uh, we were having a conversation, and it struck me at some point how how much self-referencing there was going on without even uh, there being that much consciousness of it. So she she was looking, and this is very normal and typical sort of human way of looking at it, she was looking at other people in the same role and how they do it. And there was implicit comparison going on without it actually being an obvious comparison. So the, the whole situation of the whole work and everyone involved in that work and every, everything that was around it was actually looked at Without her knowing it, through through this almost continual self-referencing, continual sense of comparing, and <coughs> even situations where she wasn't actually uh, wasn't actually uh, directly involved in, it was still this sense of comparing going on. Uh, out of that, uh, as, as she's doing the work, there, there comes when when there's a certain perceived success, that there's a limited amount of happiness. You know, things reflect well on me. Uh, things seem that went well or whatever, and there's a certain amount of limited happiness that comes out of that. But then, when things don't go well, when it reflects badly on me, there's a lot of a lot of pain that comes out of this because the self is very wrapped up, the sense of self is very wrapped up, wrapped up in the whole situation. There's, whether there's success or failure, there's a sense of constriction around. Uh, uh, the whole way of relating and being in that situation is, is a constricted one. And the Buddha used this beautiful word, um, unbinding, that this path is one of unbinding, where unbinding the heart, unbinding the consciousness. So instead of this constriction around ourselves, around others, around the world, there's actually an unbinding that goes on. And it might take some uh, time, uh, some actually some maturity really, to actually realize uh, that this issue of under, understanding self is is worthy of investigation. We tend to think, oh, the problems if I just fix this, or I just if I just change this pattern of mine. But underneath it all, it's like the thing on which all this stands is a misunderstanding of what the self is. And actually, to come to come to that point where we understand, ah, there's there's a, a key a key figure in this, a key culprit. That's that's quite some maturity already. We may come to a point in our life, in our practice, when we just, in a way, get a little fed up, and just a little tired of this constant self-referencing, and just one may begin to ask oneself, what would it be to live a live a life, to live my life where the self is not the center of, of the drama, where self is not central state. What would that even be? Could we even, how would that work? Could we even imagine that? 
the Buddha says that actually this notion of self that we have is not actually ultimately true. And so we might begin to get another deep sense of spiritual dissatisfaction, saying, I don't want to go through my life from birth and then as I get older and then death. And the whole thing really have been related to out of this sense of something that wasn't really true. I don't want to have lived in reality what, what, what might turn out to be an illusion. Can that be something that's uh, a fire in our hearts? We, I don't want to live a lie. I want to understand what is it about this self? Is it really the r- real thing that it seems to be? Will I be content with feeling like, hmm, I lived but I'm not sure how actually real that all was? We can, if we, if we begin to look at this, uh, the, the workings of the self, we actually can see that we form all kinds of self-views in life. Um, basically views about ourselves. And if we look carefully, and sometimes we don't even have to look very carefully at all, actually any self-view uh, leads to pain uh, and also leads to fear. When there's a sense, when the sense of self is strong, it has to lead to fear. I'm here and you're there. This is me, that's the world. The world is a lot bigger than me. There are a lot of people competing with me, potentially threatening me. Fear has to come out of that uh, a small sense of self. It has, to, it has to be a natural consequence of that. And similarly pain. So if, we, if we're interested in a life to be free of fear and pain, we have to understand this movement. Sometimes the, the pain that comes from self view is very obvious, uh, and, and it, it's, it's quite common to, uh, for people to be, there'd be a deep-seated sense of um, unworthiness, or uh, a sense that somewhere deep inside one is actually bad in some way, or even evil, or uh, failure, or something like that. And these can be thoughts, but they can be thoughts that are so um, woven in almost to the body that they, they actually feel visceral. And a person is carrying that self-view around through their life and at enormous cost and enormous pain to themselves. But equally, we may, we may uh, say, well, I'll replace that with a, with a positive self-view, with a good self-view. Uh, the answer, unfortunately, isn't that simple, because we, we, you know, we may affirm to ourselves and, or inflate our sense of self, I'm wonderful because of this, this, this. And, and maybe some of that has its place. But actually, sooner or later, we're just going to run into someone who, unfortunately, doesn't agree with us. And, and you can you can maybe start questioning your self views, or or have to have that the conflict with that person. So actually, inherent in having any self view, in having any uh, clinging to any self view, is is pain. Sooner or later, it, it will it will cause pain. And we can see. Uh, Similar, there may, may be areas that we just don't accept of ourselves. So what's actually going on here? What's going on with all this pain around self and this 
sense of self-worth and needing constantly to prove our uh, sense of self-worth to ourselves and to others. And it goes, it goes through the life and it might change its, uh, where it's getting its food. So, you know, when I was a kid, I, my sense of self-worth was wrapped up in playing football. And it would go up and down depending on how well I played. And then, then something else, and then some, you know, then was sent to um, very academic high school, and so it was all tied up with all that academia stuff, and then forgot about that, and then it was uh, some some other area. What's going on here? And and how are we going to move towards freedom? So it's not we're not d- uh, dependent all the time in that way. Sometimes. Um, we can think or we hear it said actually a person needs a sense of self before they let go of it that's quite uh, common to be heard but in a way it's actually rare or, or, or almost one never actually meets a person without a sense of self what's actually going on is there's quite a a fixed sense of negative self. There's actually a lot of self-sense going on. It's very solid, very contracted, and there's a lot of negativity in it. It's not that there isn't a self-sense there. It's just very attached to a negative view of self. So perhaps it would be better and more accurate to say uh, a person might need a healthy sense of self uh, before they really look deeply into the emptiness of self. But even that, maybe I would question. A healthy sense of self means not uh, a rigid attachment to extreme views about myself. I am fantastic, or I am a failure, or uh, no grandiosity and no inferiority. So when we when we move on that, when we undertake, when we embark on the spiritual journey, it's actually. Uh, Important to understand what we're actually doing with self. So it's quite it can be quite common to hear teachings that we're trying to um, eradicate the self, or destroy it, or dissolve it, or um, explode it, or absorb it into something else. Um, in the in the Buddha's understanding, that's actually not what we're trying to do, and that's actually an impossibility. Uh, it may be that for, for people uh, meditating or, or in, you know, just spontaneously, that there are experiences when it really seems like the self just, just kind of either totally disappears for, for a short time <coughs> or just it loses its sense of solidity in a way and it just becomes a very light or very refined sense of self. It doesn't... It doesn't uh, seem to be present in the same solid or even problematic way that it usually does. But all that is in the realm of experience, if, if it happens. It's something that comes, and then it's something that goes in time. It's, it's, it's an experience in time. And the question in terms of Dharma practice, in terms of liberation, is, then what? You've had this lovely experience, and usually that experience is lovely, although sometimes it's, it's frightening. But then what? The self comes back. So where's the freedom? Where's the freedom? That's, that's the fundamental question. If it 
comes and goes, are we, are we attaching to that sense of when it was refined or light or dissolved or expanded? The coming and going, where's the freedom in that? In Dharma understanding, what we're actually doing is not eliminating the self. We actually want to understand something about the self. And understand it in a way that it frees our relationship with things and frees our relationship with life. So that's what understanding means. So what we want in terms of the self is an understanding that frees. It's not a question of eliminating or anything like that. So, as I said, for some for some people, when uh, this whole question of self and if, if there are... Uh, experiences of, of less self or, or whatever no self. It's actually it just spontaneously brings a lot of joy. There's a lightness, there's a freedom, there's a sense of release there. And uh, that's quite lovely and uh, full steam ahead. Um, for, for many people it actually uh, there's a real fear of annihilation or it's like a death fear. We begin to even just talking about this self not being so solid actually brings up a lot of uh, really something very similar to a fear of death or fear of annihilation and this is often people who have quite healthy egos it's not, it's not anything neurotic or anything like that it's just part of the uh, for some people part of just being human So in that case, if there is fear around this whole area, then we need to actually respect that in a way. We need to respect that there is fear and actually move quite slowly in this area. There's no, there's no uh, pushing or forcing. So just respect that and actually move slowly in, in this inquiry into what self is. Move slowly and also appreciate the times when and if they're there, when the self is actually a bit more light and a bit more expanded and not so constricted. Uh, so this doesn't have to be some completely mystical uh, meditation experience. Just when it's a bit more, there's just less of a sense of self. When actually, there may be fear there, but at the same time, there may also be appreciation. And if we can actually, without pushing away the fear, just... Uh, gently guide the mind into the, into the sense of appreciation that might be there. The sense, oh, this is actually quite lovely. There's a sense of release here. There's a sense of unity here. Even if it's just a little bit. So instead of getting caught up in the fear, without pushing it away, just take the time to appreciate. That appreciation, just generally speaking in Dharma, is a very important factor about, uh, important factor in, in the process of things um, being absorbed and learnt uh, by the heart. That there's actually uh, some joy, even in the quietest way, some appreciation, and that, that really helps us to learn, helps our heart to learn. So it's not just about fear and coming up against what's difficult all the time. And anyway, if there is fear, uh, as I said, the self always comes back. So it's not, uh, it's extremely, extremely, extremely rare for anyone to uh, completely lose the sense of self and stay in that sense of uh, there's, there's no self. I mean, it's, it's highly, highly unlikely. So the self comes back, so we can actually trust that it's on its way back. 
and it will it will come back. <laughs> it will find us again, and <laughs> not not a problem. We just you know stay still. Don't panic. <laughs> um, it, it's on its way back. So. Uh, but we can trust that. Again, it's the movement of impermanence. It's an experience in time. It comes and it goes and it comes and it goes. It gets less, it gets more. It's okay. And further still, anyhow, the truth is the self is already empty. Whether we acknowledge it or not, it's already empty. So whatever our experience is, is we're standing on nothing. Where We feel like we're standing in something solid, but actually we're not. And that's the truth. So there's there's nothing we can fall off and not not refine. When when the Buddha talked about this, um, he he was very clear. He wasn't, as I think I said the other day, he wasn't interested in making metaphysical statements or philosophical statements or summing up life in some big. Uh, uh, intellectual system or pithy statement or something like that. Uh, in fact, when um, one day uh, someone came to him and said, uh, there is a self, right? There is a self. And uh, the Buddha, did, <laughs> he just sat there and actually didn't respond to the person. He just sat there and was silent. The guy kept badgering him. He didn't respond. And the third time, he still didn't respond. So the guy just said, and, uh, and went away. Five minutes later, another guy came and said, there's no self, right? There's no self. And again, the Buddha didn't respond. And second time and a third time, didn't respond. And the guy got frustrated and went away. And Anando, his uh, cousin and attendant, was standing there and said, you know, what's going on? And uh, the Buddha said, uh, paraphrase. I'm not interested in, in, in these kind of statements. If I said one thing, the person would take up that view and cling to that view, that there is a self. If I agreed with the other person, he would take up that view and cling to that view. That's not the middle way. So the Buddha was um, interested in, in this. He was pointing uh, to practical uh, Ways that we can move towards suffering, not statements about reality. He's saying, uh, as, as with the other characteristics, if we look, if we learn how to look this way at, at our life, at things, we will, we can become, we can actually have faith that we are moving towards freedom. It's not a statement; it's a way. He's encouraging us to look in a certain way, and that way is going to lead us to freedom. So it's something practical. That we need to do, need to start incorporating. So, what does that mean? Uh, and briefly speak, briefly, uh, briefly, it means um, to to look at things as not self, not me, not mine. Anything internal, external, we just we just regard it as not self, not me, and not mine. So we're practicing anatta. We're not believing it. We're not making a formula out of it. We're practicing it. It's a path of practice. As I, uh, these three characteristics, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and, uh, and uh, this not-self, 
they are not ultimate truths, but they are ways of looking that lead to freedom. That's that's um, their tools. So how to how to go about it? We can uh, actually go about it via uh, via the, the the door of impermanence, which is. Uh, maybe the most obvious way to come about it. If I look at my experience, if I look at my life, if I look at my inner world, all I all I see is impermanence. All I see is flux. I don't see anything that lasts. Everything I look at is changing. The sense of self is something that actually seems to be fixed and solid and lasting. I was the same person yesterday and 20 years ago, and I will be tomorrow, and if I'm alive in 20 years, I will, be, I will feel like I'm the same person. But if I can't find anything that's actually permanent, can't find anything, how can it, what is this sense of a fixed and stable sense of self actually resting on? So one way is actually through the door of impermanence, just to see that there's actually nothing in our experience we can find that's, that's permanent. And just to let that really uh, register deeply. So the, the gateway of impermanence, and there's also the gateway of the other characteristic of unsatisfactoriness. And so to see, actually this is, this is more subtle, but to see that whenever I take something as me or mine, even if, it, if there's an aspect of feeling good to it, it's, there's actually suffering involved. There's, in doing this, to say me or mine is actually uh, a clenching. And that clenching is suffering. And we can actually feel that clenching when we identify with something, say it's me or mine. And when we stop identifying, when we let that go, we can actually feel it release. and Feel the relief of that just to notice, oh, I don't actually have to hold. It's possible to let go and there's relief in letting go. And this can be whatever it is, to body sensations, to emotions, to feelings, to thoughts and mind states. Any, any aspect of our experience, the body itself. Similar to the other characteristics, we, we may think, well, uh, you know, I need to wait till uh, I've got rid of some of this junk that's just spinning around my mind, or, or till I'm more mindful, or more calm, or whatever. But actually, this way of looking, this anatta way of looking, will lend itself to calmness. Will will uh, allow and uh, encourage a, a calmness in in the being. So it's not that we have to wait till everything's cleared out before we start actually reflecting in this way. And similarly, if we are taking this up as a practice, to use uh, either one object, uh, so the body sensations or the feelings in the heart area, whatever it is, or a sense of a steady, a steady sense of global awareness. It's just there's just awareness as the body, and there's the things appearing and disappearing in that in that sense of awareness. So it's not it's not uh, the attention isn't flickering around all over. There's nothing wrong with that, it's just more helpful to practice that way. So 
go into a bit more detail about about this. Uh, it sound, this sounds quite technical, but um, usually we think of the self as as one. I am one, and uh, you are lots of ones. And um, th- there's a sense that I am a, a, a unity in myself. One of the ways the Buddha actually. Uh, went against that to try and break it, break that way of seeing down is actually to split what we take as one and split it into five. This is called the five aggregates. So, uh, what he's saying is a human being and a human being's experience is just the body, this uh, feeling tone or Vedana that we've talked about, perception, uh, what's called mental formations, which is thoughts and feel and uh, emotions, excuse me, thoughts and emotions and intentions, and moods and mind states. It's quite a big collection there. And then consciousness. So body, feeling, tone, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And there's actually nothing that's outside of that. There's nothing that we can refer to as myself that's outside of that. So the way to practice is actually to, to maybe take one of these aggregates, for instance, take uh, the body sensations or take the feeling tone and actually just um, quietly reflect to oneself. It, maybe in the, like in the back of the awareness there's a little quiet mental note, just not me, not mine. There's this feeling going on, not me, not mine. Can we just see this is just happening? It's just happening in the universe, so to speak. Actually, so we're deliberately inclining the seeing in a certain way. And one does this in a very gentle way. Uh, it's a practice. Something begins, uh, can begin to, to shift a little bit, or a lot. Now, it may be that uh, we can just be mindful and somehow in just the the continuity of mindfulness there comes this uh, disidentification with the elements of our experience. It may be that that's what happens. And if that does happen, then uh, it's all the more easier, uh, all the more easy to actually encourage that a little bit just by saying, not me, not mine, this is just happening. Sometimes if we suggest a deliberate contemplation, like to actually contemplate this as not-self, sometimes uh, we can, people can feel a little bit uneasy. I thought Vipassana was not to, not to add anything to experience, I'm just being with what is. I thought that's what, what Vipassana was about. But actually, what's, what actually happens in typical consciousness is that something happens, there's a sensation in the body, there's a feeling in the heart, right there with it is something we're actually adding unconsciously. I'm adding, it's me, my body, or it's my feeling. And we don't actually realize that unconsciously we are actually already adding something. So to contemplate anatta is actually to to stop adding, to stop uh, putting unreal things on experience. beginning to break that unconscious habit. We are more interested in the freedom 
that comes from the way of looking, then we are attachment to a certain way of practicing. Interested in the freedom. How the freedom comes is not important. If it comes from just being with what is and just being mindful, great. If it comes from saying, not me, not mine, and encouraging that movement, great. It's the freedom that's important. It's not, not the method, not the technique. If we do begin to practice this way, there's, there are you know, inherent uh, dangers, or a strong word, but um, one is that we're actually orienting to try and get a certain experience. Right, I'm going to do this so I can get this uh, big mystical sense of no self or whatever. And that's setting ourselves up for suffering. If we're, if we're just uh, trying to go in for some experience, it's, it's going it's to be a problem. Again, what we, want to un- what we want to do is to actually understand, we want to understand that uh, there is suffering involved for us when we identify. The more we identify, this is me, this is mine, the more suffering there is. The less we identify, the less suffering there is. We want to understand that deeply, in the heart, in the cells, Uh, not as an intellectual idea. So it's not about getting a certain experience, it's about can we actually have that understanding of something very uh, real running deep in our lives. (coughs) When I first heard that uh, five aggregates business and this sort of breakdown of a human being into, uh, you know, all these five things and... I was furious. I was uh, totally disgusted. <laughs> really turned off. I thought, uh, how ridiculous, how cold, how, how reductionistic, how materialistic, you know, awful. You know, where's the love? Where's the, where's the appreciation of what a human being is? And um, but shortly after, I actually stopped practicing for about four years. It wasn't just because of that. But... <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, for a lot of different reasons, I won't go into that, but I was quite turned off by the whole sort of teaching. And, and, and so that can be quite a common approach. And there's five of this and four of them. What the hell, you, you know? And, um, it's important, actually. If that's a reaction, it's important. Acknowledge that. It's an important. But just all I can say is that when I came back to practicing and be, actually began to look in this way, um, I began to get a very real sense, and more and more and more and more. Oh, this is this really is freedom. This really is a lovely, lovely release and relief that's here. It's a sense of openness that comes with looking this way, a real sense of beauty, and a sense of love. Very much a sense of love. So my uh, former uh, qualms and anxieties were were were, were unfounded. Um, and it, in fact, the, the other day we had the closing session for the people who left after two weeks, and one of the retreatants was very beautiful. He's saying, um, just opening to this for I think the first time, and saying, beginning to get a sense. Uh, she said, "My my heart is not me, and it's not mine." And um, she's her words. She said. I feel empty and full at the same time, and it's wonderful and it's liberating. And what happens 
is not that we become, uh, you know, emotionally dead, <coughs> cut off, cold at all. There, there may, and I think there will be, um, a real reduction, begin to be a real reduction in, in the kind of negative emotions, the kind of problematic emotions, and that whole kind of building up of what's negative. That will come through this way of looking. But the lovely emotions, love, connection, concern, uh, um, sense of oneness, joy, peace, freedom, they, they, they stay there and they begin to fill the heart. So it's not at all that this is a, 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 you know, some kind of movement towards being a Vipassana robot or, or something. We can contemplate ourselves this way with these five aggregates. We can also actually contemplate other beings this way. So that's actually quite important when there's uh, a sense of mm, alienation from others or disconnection or, or judging others. And this judgmental mind comes up uh, quite often for, for many of us. Excuse me. And actually how to work with that judgmental is not an easy thing to work with. One of the ways, actually, is to contemplate the five aggregates of another person. So you can sit opposite this person you're judging, or <laughs> think about them, and actually contemplate, there's body there, same as my body. There's feeling there, Vedana, same as my feeling. Perception, same as mine. Coming and going. Mental formations, coming and going, same as mine. Consciousness, same as mine. And that... that uh, begins again rather than reducing the person actually begins to uh, cement a sense of co- commonality there and the ju- when there's a sense of commonality the uh, it's hard for, for that judgmentalism to actually stand so it's very one very skillful thing to do in in the face of, of strong feelings of judgment when we see the five aggregates of ourselves and others it leads it leads to love Because, as I say, we're seeing the commonality, and the mind actually can get into ruts where it's just seeing the differences. It's just seeing the differences, and then in that seeing the differences, when 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 aversion comes in there, then all all the um, all the war and all the strife and all the uh, difficulties that we have as human beings, that's where that comes in. It's festering in that, in that uh, gap of difference. If we look in terms of the five aggregates, we see a lot of this is very different. It's, it's not very different, excuse me. If I, if I you know, had some uh, highly technologically advanced button here and I could press it and swap the sensations in my backside right now for the sensations in one of your backsides. <laughs> there was a machine that did that. Would any of you even notice when I press the button? <laughs> How different? Same, same sensations, body sensations, same. We're, so, we're, we're more similar than we, than we uh, sometimes than we realize. Actually, to begin to reflect on this, on this how, how undifferent we are in, in many respects. 
And similarly, in terms of thought, you know, a lot of the way we think nowadays is actually, uh, I mean, not, not to deny our uniqueness at all, but a lot of the way we think is actually quite conditioned by what we've read, what we see, what we've come, what's come to us through the media. And a lot, a lot of that we have very, in very, we share that in common. You know, we've probably all seen, um, I don't know, Star Wars, maybe the movie, <laughs> or something, you know. Uh, uh, we could all sing certain songs. We have a lot of culturally in common. And a lot of the thoughts, and, and with Dharma as well, we share a lot of that in common. So a lot of, uh, it's not so much about self. A lot, a lot of this is just conditioned. To begin to see that. And it's not taking away our humanity to see that. So when we, when we see uh, in, in this way, uh, in terms of the five aggregates, we can actually begin to see, with some practice, you begin to see identification with the five aggregates is actually not necessary. It's quite possible to live and function and go and have my dinner and talk and, and whatnot without actually identifying with this. It's actually not something that's necessary. It's not that we'll become a zombie and dysfunctional. Uh, it's actually not something, it's something added to our experience. It's not necessary. It's not necessary. It's also not true. As I said, if, ever, if everything's changing, how, and I can't find anything that, that is not changing to be myself, how can it be true? So it's not necessary. It's not true. And it's also, as I said, it's, it's dukkha, it's, it's, uh, it's suffering. When we hold on as me or mine, we, we, we see that it's suffering. When we identify, we see it's suffering. Not necessary, it's not true, and it's dukkha. And to see that and to be very clear about that. And that takes time, it takes time to be really clear about that. So... There's this looking at the. I would like to explore a little bit of the ways we might practice. So the first, the first way is this, this five aggregates way. That's, very, that's the most common, and it's uh, well, it's the most common. It's a very powerful way of practicing. We might also just in a much more informal way. You know, sometimes if you, when you get home after the retreat, uh, well, I used to sometimes just sit in my apartment that I had. I was actually renting, but it doesn't matter whether you own it or you rent it, and actually just. Just sit there, not, not fancy meditation or no meditation posture. Sit on the sofa and just look at your stuff. And if you just, just look at it, after a while, is it mine? Is it really mine? Just the, the question. You know, there's the notion that it's mine, but actually, is it? And then to, to um, actually let that feeling, in a way, just come naturally out of if you just look at something. And similarly, you may you just sit and look at your hand for long enough, or another part of your body, uh, just somehow in the looking, there's, there's a, at some point it begins to not really feel like it's mine or me. It just comes out of a steadiness of attention, actually. And again, to, to, to let these things settle deep in the being, we actually need then to allow ourselves to feel the freedom of that. If you're sitting in, in your apartment and none of this stuff is, is mine, that's, a, that's great. <laughs> it's a real relief. It's not, there's a sense of freedom in that and to actually feel that freedom and let oneself feel the freedom. 
this this feeling of freedom more and more. Then we, it's like then we're learning, we're recognizing this is where freedom lies. It lies in non-identification. If we don't uh, allow ourselves to tune into that freedom, uh, we won't learn where freedom is. The freedom of not fully believing, not fully buying into, uh, this is mine, or I have this. Okay, so there's the five aggregates, there's this sort of very informal way of just looking at stuff. There's another way, that, in a way it's getting simpler now. So, um, we could say that instead of dividing things into five, you could divide things into two. So, the world, inner and outer, you can actually divide into, uh, let's say, objects of awareness, things that we are aware of. So, physical things, uh, either that I call mine or that I call not mine. Uh, internal things, thoughts and feelings and emotions and uh, states of mind. So there's objects that we can be aware of, and then there's awareness. There's objects and there's awareness. We can, either just through the continuity of, of, of attention, or again by this deliberately just quietly saying, not me, not mine, just reminding ourselves that, begin to... Um, let go of the identification with objects. So there's a sense, there's sensations going on in the body, they're not me and not mine. They're just, it's just sensations happening. But, what may happen at that point, a, per- a person may be practicing in that way and practicing diligently, and, and there's actually a sense of uh, release with that, a sense of openness and loveliness. We've, we've stopped identifying with objects. But, at that point, it may be, uh, and it, it probably will be, actually, almost certainly, that identification remains. It remains identified with awareness. We're identified with awareness. So I'm not the object, but I am the watcher. I am the witness. I am consciousness. I am awareness. Sometimes this is we're very we we know that this is going on, and we may have heard this as a teaching. You are consciousness. You are the witness, with all with capital letters to make it sound really important. Um, uh, that's not the Buddha's teaching, and it's not. Uh, it's still a level of holding there. Sometimes, more often than not, it's actually going on at a level that we're not we're not um, conscious of. We don't know that this is going on. We've we've let go of identification with objects, but still subtly there's a sense of me being aware, me sitting here watching the world go by, and everything is not me except this awareness, and we don't even know that we're identified with that awareness. It's a much more subtle level of clinging. We need to let go of that identification too, and that's a more subtle uh, letting go. But again, we can actually just reflect, awareness is just happening. There's just awareness. There's just awareness in the universe. Not me, not mine. It's not identified with anything, any object, and it's not identified with awareness. It's, it's not 
clinging anywhere. That that is a very um, a very powerful place. The sense of self is not is not grasping anywhere, and uh, the potential there for all kinds of uh, liberating insights is actually enormous. Again, not to grasp any of this, but just to to say that that uh, when the sense of self is actually let go of that subtle identification with awareness, it's very, very powerful. Sometimes uh, a person might have been practicing this way and actually there's a sense of um, There's just this impersonal flow of things going on. None of it's me or mine, it's just arising, passing, it's just the endless flux and flow of life. And it may feel like, well that's it, that's sort of what what we need to see. But that's actually not the final resting point. We need to actually go beyond that. And how, how are we going to go beyond that? Um, the sense of... Another way of contemplating emptiness of self. The sense of self is actually... It needs something to kind of get wrapped up in and get uh, uh, either agitated or excited about. Itself needs to stand on something. So that means some, it, it cannot stand independent. We have a sense of a self that is independent of things. Whatever happens, I'm the self. It doesn't matter. If nothing's happening, I'm still this self. But actually, if we see closer, the sense of self, something has to be a big deal for a sense of self to be very strong. So either there's pain going on in the body and that's a big deal and the sense of self grows around that. Or... Um, or my role, or, or some event is a big deal, and the sense of self gets strong around that. If we begin to go into this, this whole anatta way of looking, you can actually see, the sense of self depends on a thing, but, equally, a thing depends on the sense of self. So when we begin to experience less of a sense of self, or a loosening, or or a lightening of the sense of self, actually the world begins to appear differently. The world begins to appear differently. Things begin to appear differently. The the, the, the causality works both ways. And there's something very... um, If we understand that mutuality, if we understand that very deeply, uh, this is the deepest scene. So all of this, all of this freedom around self, it actually, um, it's not that it will make us all kind of the same, all neutral, uh, you know, factory products <laughs> of Gaia House. Um, it actually frees self-expression. If we, if we actually begin to reflect in our lives, begin to actually pay attention, when are the times when I wanted to express something, or I was in... I was in an opportunity to express something creatively or artistically or in relationship. And I actually, uh, I felt inhibited. 
is when the sense of self gets constricted around that. So all this seeing is actually freeing our self-expression, freeing us to to actually express in in completely unique ways that we are. It's not a, a contradiction to say that we're all completely unique. We're all a- absolutely unique expressions in the universe, and yet the self-expression is not coming from this um, fixed and, and, and tied sense of self. And that similarly might uh, relate to our expression of love. How often have we wanted to express love to someone close or, or a stranger? And there's just there's the inhibition or the fear of what, how it will be received or some kind of constriction around self or self you are, I don't really, you know, I'm not really that kind of person, or maybe they'll think of me in a certain way. So this seeing through the solid solidity of self frees the self-expression, frees the creativity, frees the movement of love. And it's also seeing through our sense of separation. When we see through the sense of separation, there has to be love there. And actually, we begin to treat others equally, because we're not always number one. What would it be not to always be number one? There's a genuine sense of really deep, uh, sort of lived uh, ethics, lived sila, because we really, really do care about other people equally. So finally. When we, when we actually begin to let go of a way of looking, the habitual way of looking that we have, that's uh, without us really realizing it, we, we approach situations, we wake up in the morning, and we come to a, enter a room, or whatever it is, and without realizing it, so often the, what's guiding our looking, what's guiding our looking at the world, and our seeing of things, is usually a silent question, what's in it for me? How's this going to affect me? Is it threatening? Is it something I need to keep away? Is it something I I can maybe get for me? Sometimes it's very obvious and sometimes it's very, very subtle. But that's, it's our orientation in looking. What's in it for me? And there's a kind of agenda there. We're pushing certain things away and pulling other things toward us. When we actually let go of that, when we begin to let go of that agenda and let go of that pushing and pulling, there comes uh, gradually, uh, or sometimes not gradually, there, there, there's a different way, the world looks different. There's um, a radiance in the world when we let go of that pushing and pulling. There's a sense of mystery there. It's usually most of our sense of fulfillment and excitement in life is bound up with this pushing and pulling and getting and what do I need to keep away. We can't imagine that the kind of uh, equanimity that might come out of letting some of that go is actually lovely and beautiful. If we begin to let go of the self-agenda, then uh, a whole uh, different dimension is available in life. I think I'll 
stop there actually. Um, so we have a few quite nice.